That's great. Let's open our Bibles together to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I will start after we pray. I'll start reading in verse 5, which is the passage we read last week, but the passage we're going to study today actually starts in verse 12, but I think it's very necessary to read it from verse 5 so you get a sense of the context of what's being said in verse 12 and beyond. So uh, let's bow before God. We need His teaching in us, right? That's what Jesus said of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. When He comes, you won't have any need that any man teaches you. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for teachers among men who God is gifted to teach, but, but the real learning happens inside us at the direction and instruction of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Spirit. And thank you for your word. We have in us the presence of you and we are commanded by you to be filled. And we have also before us the scriptures. All scripture, God breathed. Profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have Your Word before us. We have Your Spirit in us. Thank You. Lord, we wish to learn of You. We come to sit at Your feet today to learn of You, myself included. Teach us Your ways. Strengthen us, we pray, Lord God. Even as this passage makes reference to You in us, working in us to will and to do for Your good pleasure, we need that. Lord God, so that we might walk in this world as we ought to, directed and empowered by You. And we know that so much of that just kind of grows in us and grows mature in us and we become aware of it. We're able to understand and know Your will more and more as we just get to know Jesus our Lord more and more and more and better and better and better. And so I pray, Lord God, that this time we have here now would be a time devoted to that. Distractions, discouragements, everything just set aside for the sake of getting to know You, Lord God, better. And then when we go from here, I pray that each one of us individually, Lord God, would seek that and pursue it more. Drawing near to You that You might draw near to us going into the room and shutting the door and seeking You in secret that You may reward us openly. Lord, if anyone is in here today, I know primarily as we preach through Your Word and read letters like Philippians, we're we're reading things that were written to people who have been saved. 
but we also know that it's possible people could come to a meeting like this. People could come to meetings like this for months, and maybe they haven't actually gotten saved yet. They're still thinking. They're, it's still, Lord, whatever the situation is, if there's anyone here today who needs to be saved, Lord, your word continues always to be true that as many as receive you, Lord Jesus, to them you give the power to become the children of God to those who believe in your name. And I pray that you, by your power and your grace and your love, would bring that person or people to saving faith today. We're all here like in different places. Mature Christians, new Christians, struggling Christians, people that aren't Christians yet. Just whatever the Word needs to do, we pray that you would do it, Lord God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. And I'll probably have to back up a moment even from that. But here's verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what, what mind is that? What he, what he talks about in the beginning of the chapter, right, right above that, before that, when he talks about people being just of the same love, of one accord, of one mind, humble, lowliness of mind, looking out for other people's interests and not only your own. It's a humility and a seeking of the betterment of others. That's the, that's the mindset of the Christian. We're not living, going through our lives just seeking our own. As Christians, we go through our lives looking for the better of others. You know, Certainly within the church, our brothers and sisters seeking the betterment of others. Uh, even, even in the world, even among our enemies, loving our enemies, right? That's the mindset that Jesus had when he came. That's the mindset we are called to have. And then in verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? He's not, he's not speaking of some new, newfangled way of, of, of thinking. It's new for us as new believers, perhaps, but not anything new because it was the way that Christ looked at the world when he came. And so it says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Praise the Lord. Very powerful stuff. Now, you'll notice in verse 12, which is the passage that we want to start looking at today, having kind of studied through verse 11 last week. Of course, you notice it starts with the word therefore. And that's why I backed up to read because I think that what Paul is doing here is he's, he's reaching a conclusion that is based on what he has just said about Christ. And what did he say about Christ? He said a few very important things about Christ in the preceding passage. Right? He said Christ had a mindset of humility. Christ was very humble as he lived his life here on the earth. And what else does it say about Christ? Something that we don't often think of when we think of Christ, but it says this clearly. It says that Christ was obedient when he was here on the earth. Christ was humble and Christ was obedient. He was obedient all the way to the point of death, even the death of the cross, right? So Christ was humble and Christ was obedient and that was the outworking of the mindset that he had that we're told to all have the same mindset towards each other, towards God, towards the whole world. Humility. Walking in humility. Walking in humility and obedience because, as you'll see later as we go through this, this passage of Scripture calls us to shine as lights We are called to be testimonies of God's grace and love and power and goodness. His goodness. The goodness of God ought to be on display in our lives, in our words, in how we treat people, in how we act, certainly in how we relate to one another. The goodness of Christ ought to be on display. The really important thing about this passage of Scripture is just that. He is trying to remind these people, these wonderful believers in this church at Philippi, that they don't just live here on earth for their own sakes or to do whatever they want. Their lives are on display for what he called, in his own words, a perverse and crooked generation. Right? We live in a perverse and crooked generation. There has never been a time in history when the Christians could not say, "Uh, we live in a crooked and perverse generation. And I can stand here and I can pull headlines off of news websites and things like that and show you all kinds of examples of the fact that make it very clear that we live in a crooked and perverse generation I won't do that because it, takes, it would take a lot of time. It would just make us all angry, and that's not the purpose of preaching God's Word, right? 
but we do live in a crooked and perverse generation. It's crooked and perverse morally. It's crooked and perverse economically. It's crooked and perverse at every level of government, every level of media, every level of entertainment. Everyone is trying, it seems, to cheat everybody else. People have no uh, no reservation or inhibition about lying to each other, cheating, deceiving, robbing, stealing from one another. There are no inhibitions about even killing. There are no inhibitions about immorality. Everything seems to be out the window when there is any sort of anchor of righteousness within the conduct of the society. And so Paul labeled his generation something that fits my generation very well. Crooked and perverse. And Paul says to the Christians, not, thank God, we're above that. No, because we need to be humble about that. We're part of it. What he says, though, is, I, you, you shine as lights in the middle of it because people ought to be able to look at you and see. Just like a person who is stumbling around in darkness, when a light gets flicked on, it's like, ah, yes, there. People ought to be able to look at our lives and see light, the light of God, the light of Christ. We sang a hymn this morning, the chorus went, Everlasting life and light he freely gives. Right? And that's what, that's what we, we receive from him. Life and light. But then we are to reflect and shine and display that life and light in our living. And that's what this passage is about. But it starts with having the attitude that Jesus had. Which was an attitude that was so humble that he was obedient. You think of... I mean... Christ, we sang another song that said you're to be obeyed, right? I mean, Christ is the one that we're supposed to obey. But when Christ was here on the earth, he himself humbled himself, found in the likeness of a man, became like a slave and was obedient and went all the way to his death, his death on the cross, to pay the price for our sins that we might be redeemed by God's grace through faith in him. And that is our example. He had an attitude of humility that played out in obedience in his life. Obedience to his call, right? He even prayed. He even prayed before he was crucified. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then he was obedient right to that point of his death on the cross. Now, that is the foundation for what it says in verse 12. Christ was humble and obedient. And so what does verse 12 start by saying? I want to draw your attention, first of all, to the fact that verses 12 and 13 are one sentence. More modern versions of the Bible, just to maybe kind of make the concepts easier to understand, might break it up a little bit, put periods in places where maybe they ought not to be. And that's fine. It helps to understand what it says. But, but I think the New King James here captures it right. It's one sentence, verses 12 and 13. All right? So, in other words, because Christ was humble and obedient even to the point of his death, therefore, that's what therefore means. We're 
drawing a conclusion based on that. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he gives the reason why you ought to work out your own salvation, fear and trembling, because for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, right? And it was Jesus who set the example of humility and obedience. And what Paul is saying here is, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, and then he tells them what they ought to do, right? Before we even get into that, uh, what it is that he is telling them to do, let's talk a little bit about the way he starts this off. First of all, there is this, there is this idea that Paul, as an apostle, is, is exercising some authority that he has over them, over them, right? He is speaking to them as one who is speaking with authority, right? Because he refers to their prior obedience when he was present with them, and then says, now that I'm not with you, I want you to continue to obey like that as well. But he doesn't say it to them as like a lord or harshly. How does he address them? It's so, these, these words are so important. Every single word. Therefore, what? My beloved. Right? So he's not speaking like down to them. He's not speaking as a lord to them. Uh, and that's an important thing because that's how like leaders within Christianity are called to be. They're not called to be lords. And uh, they're, they're called to like love the people that they serve and to live their lives as examples before them. I just want you to see this because this really sets the stage for like what's going on here is that Paul is, because that's what Paul is doing. He's using the fact that Christ in the example of his own life was humble and obedient and then says, you know, you also, you've always obeyed when, I'm, when I was there and now I want you to continue to obey what I'm about to tell you, even when I'm not there. Let me just say a little something about like the place of uh, like, like leadership and authority and all of that. Let me show you a couple of verses on this subject, okay? 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. Turn there. These, are, these will both be verses that you know, but I just, I just want it to be like kind of really clear. Come on, turn there. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. The... It says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then it makes the fact that points out that Jesus himself is the chief shepherd, right? When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, the word shepherd, of course, is where we get the word pastor from. The, the words are basically the same thing. And those who are pastors or elders, as they're addressed in the first part of this uh, verse, in verse 1, the elders who are among you, he says, shepherd the flock of God, right? How do, what does a shepherd do? A shepherd guides the sheep along, right? Which is among you, look at this though, serving as overseers. Now, word overseer is the same word that Paul uses when he says to Timothy concerning those who would endeavor to be in this position in the church uh, if a man desires the office of bishop, 
The word bishop is the same word here, episkopos. It means overseer. And the idea of overseer is not someone who lords something over, but the idea of it's overseer. It's not overlord, which is a different word and a different concept, right? It doesn't say serving as overlords. That would be something different. An overlord would be someone who has complete and total absolute you know, authority to just say and everyone must do. But that's not what a pastor is called to be. He's called to be an overseer. What's an overseer? It's someone who watches, like a shepherd, which is why it says that. It's someone who watches over a flock because the sheep in the flock don't belong to, this, to, the, to the shepherds on earth. The sheep in the flock, in this case, belong to the chief shepherd, who is the one who's going to return, right? The people of any church belong to the Lord, and they belong to Jesus, including the overseer, right? We all together, we belong to the Lord. And so the person who is like in charge, the person who is the elder, the pastor in the flock, is called the shepherd of the flock, serving as overseers. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Paul said that to Timothy. Peter says it here. If a man desires the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Paul talks here, or Peter talks here about the, uh, the pastor serving not by compulsion, not just doing things because he has to, but gladly and willingly, not for dishonest gain, you know, not using his influence to just separate people from their money so he can get rich, but actually eager to serve, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. In other words, the pastor, as he's preaching, should live the things that he preaches so that there's a living example of the things that he's preaching and teaching for the people not only to listen to, but to see. And then the obedience to all of that is promised a reward. So you can see that uh, when Paul speaks to the Philippian church and says to them, my beloved, I want you to obey in my absence just like you've always obeyed in my presence, He's not speaking to them as an overlord, but he's speaking to them as a brother who loves them. And they love him, right? Kind of the the balance on the other side of this. Now what about like the... So that's the responsibility of the shepherd. What about the responsibility of the people? Hebrews, if you back up to Hebrews 13 and 17, just back up a little bit to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who have the rule over you. And that, that would certainly appear, as you read the rest of the passage all around it, which I don't have time to do right now, to be in the context of life among Christians, right? Obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive, look, for they watch out for your souls. Right? So we're not necessarily talking about other areas of your life or in society, though the Bible teaches there that you should be submissive to those who have rule over you as well. But here, you're talking about people who watch over your soul, which is the same idea of overseer. You know, it's the person who watches over your soul by doing what? By trying to preach the Word of God, trying to live his life as an example, certainly praying, certainly calling people together to pray, calling people together to encourage them to be good witnesses in the world and everything else. And you're told here, what? Obey those who have that rule over you and be submissive. Again, it's not a harsh thing. There ought to be in a church a love. That's why Paul can call them my beloved. There ought to be a love among leaders and everyone in the church. 
And the Philippian church had that, didn't they? I mean, this verse says, obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account, right? I mean, the kind of preaching and teaching that I do, the kind of example that I set, the the way that I try to like kind of nudge in a particular direction or the way that I try to steer people towards God or encourage people to witness and encourage discipleship and everything else. All that is stuff that I have to account to the chief shepherd for, right? And so your call is to obey those who have the rule over you. And it says, let them, that's the the overseer, let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you, right? If your, your loving submission promotes better work from the person who oversees. Now, I don't mean just mean me and us. This is like universally true, you know, in, among churches where the Bible is preached and where gospel is preached and people love the Lord, right? It's just wisdom here. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. The better, the better that the congregation responds to the overseer, the more joy the overseer will have. And the more joy the overseer has, the more encouraged he will be to shepherd the flock as he ought. That is a description not of a harsh legalism where I must do this and you must do that. It is actually, when you put those two verses together, the one from Hebrews and the one from Peter, when you put those, the, those two concepts together, what you get is a picture of love in a congregation, a picture where the person who is the overseer respects the chief shepherd and respects the fact that the people are maybe all at all different positions and all different places in their lives. And the people of the church respect the fact that the person who's been called to be the overseer has a pretty high calling with a very special level of accountability. When everybody respects the position of everybody else, there is what? There is love. That's what love is, is considering others ahead of ourselves, even in that. So when Paul starts this passage off by saying, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what a beautiful picture of this Philippian church he is painting, right? He is writing to them and reminding them, when I was there, you always followed what I said, And now I'm asking you to do it again, even though I can't be there because I'm in prison right now, right? And that's 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 what he's doing. But the thing I wanted you to see is that he refers to them as my beloved. So he wasn't writing to them and just wielding some heavy stick of authority. He was saying, look, I love you. I know you love me. You've always obeyed in the past when I was there. And I want you to obey now this, what I'm about to tell you, even though you're not, even though I'm not there. Okay? Now, what is it with that said, moving on from there, what is it that he tells them to do? And let's just point that out first of all. Is this sentence, 12 and 13, is a command. It's a command. Uh, There's something that they're told to do. And what they're told to do is what? Work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And why are they called to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling? Notice that verse 13, the second part of the sentence, starts with the word for, right? It's a reason. 
the reason that they are to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling is because of who it is that's working in them. God is personally working in each one of His children everything that's needed for us to live the life living out our salvation as we ought. It is God who works in us to will and to do. Listen, that's, that pretty much covers the function of everything in life. To will means we have a desire to do something, and then to do means to actually do it. Isn't that how virtually every action in life takes place? It starts with a desire to do something, and then there needs to be strength and ability to do it. God is working in each one of His children to will and to do. That comes from God, not from ourselves. So we're called to what? Really what this is saying is, we're called to work out what God is working in. This idea of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me tell you three things that that, that doesn't mean. All right? You ready? Here's three things that work out your own salvation with fear and trembling does not mean. Number one, it does not mean figure it out. You know, because we say that sometimes. When, when, someone is, uh, when someone's struggling through something or going through a hard time, we'll say, well, work it out. You need to just work it through. Work it out, right? That's not what he's talking about here. This is not about figuring it out. The second thing that this doesn't mean is it doesn't, it doesn't say work for your own salvation. This does not have anything to do with earning salvation. Where it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's not talking about earning your salvation by any conduct. Right? I'll explain why for all this in a minute. And third thing that it does not mean, it does not mean to work to hold on to your salvation. Right? Work to keep your salvation. So it doesn't mean to figure out your salvation. It doesn't mean to earn your salvation. And it doesn't mean to keep your salvation. Right? Because I will submit to you that the clear weight of reading the rest of the Bible shows that all three of those things, even the first one, learning and figuring out your salvation, all of those are a gift from God. They are all by God's grace alone. So when he says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he is not shifting some degree of burden upon you for either understanding salvation, earning salvation, or keeping salvation. There is no burden shift there at all. He's saying something entirely different. So don't think to yourself when you see this passage that, like, okay, and the most common of those, I think, is the third that people fall into. When it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, people will look at that sometimes and they'll think that, okay, now that I've received salvation, there's a certain way that I have to live or a certain thing that I have to do, certain things that I have to do in order to keep myself saved. And that's not what it means. Because if it did mean that, then salvation would be transferring from the time I believed being a salvation by grace through faith to then being a salvation based on works, which I keep. And listen, no such thing exists in the Bible anywhere. We have the, we have the message of salvation unveiled to us by His grace, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So even even the capacity to understand and believe the gospel 
is God's gift, right? Uh, We're not saved by anything that we do, and we don't keep our salvation by anything that we do. Our salvation is entirely a work of God's grace. Now, everything about it, learning it, receiving it, keeping it, all of it is God's grace. So what is he saying? To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to focus on the word own. He is speaking to people who have been saved. Work, so that's what salvation is. Salvation is a word that basically means being saved. He's saying to work out that salvation. What he means when he says work it out is to live it. To live it out. To, to, to live your life as a saved person. He's talking about living out your Christian life. And the key to understanding this statement are the words fear and trembling. What he's trying to do is he's trying to tell these believers, you ought to, ready? Here, here's really the crux of the whole part, this whole part of it. You ought to live out your salvation the same way that who lived his life? Jesus, right? That's the whole point of the word therefore in the beginning of the, of the section. You know, Jesus was humble and obedient. Therefore, as you live out your salvation, you live it out with fear and trembling also. The key is to understand what those words fear and trembling mean. He's not talking about living your life in fear and trembling because if I don't do such and such, God might send me to hell. That's already settled. Thank God, right? That's already been settled by His grace. If you have faith in Christ if you have received Christ as your Savior, if you have believed the gospel of Christ, that Jesus died and paid the price for your sins in full when he died on the cross, and you believe that he rose from the dead, and you have faith in Jesus, you're trusting in him and not in yourself, not in religion, not in any works, not in any sacraments, not in any ceremony. You're trusting in in who Jesus is and what he did and nothing else then the issue of you being saved is forever and irrevocably settled, brothers and sisters. And now what's true for Christians is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. We are saved. So what he's doing is he's telling the Christians here, what? To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What I think he's talking about is simply having that same attitude of humility that Jesus did. This phrase, and this is what really makes it clear to me, this phrase, fear and trembling, comes up a few other times in things that Paul wrote, and it comes up in one thing that Peter wrote, and I want you to see it so you understand what it is that he's talking about. Turn first, and we'll do this briefly, but I want you to see it, so turn with me, okay? Got your Bibles? You ready? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul uses basically the same phrase there. 1 Corinthians, you don't have to go back too far. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says, And I, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. There it is, fear and trembling, right? And my speech 
and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When Peter, when Paul says there that when I was among you, I was there in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, what is he talking about? Was he afraid of the Corinthians? I don't think so. I think when you read the, 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 the words of the Apostle Paul and you read about him in the book of Acts, Paul pretty much looks like a guy who's not afraid of anything that men can do or anything that men can do. He's not talking about like a carnal fear there. He's talking about the humility and the respect for everything and everyone around him that he had. And, when, and even though Paul was brilliant and educated, scholarly, and had a high position among even the, the most elite Jewish leadership council in Jerusalem, Paul said, when I was among you, I didn't bring any of that out. All I wanted, I I determined, he said, I decided that when I'm among you, the only thing you're going to hear about is Christ and him crucified. That's it. Because Paul knew that's the only thing that brought salvation. And so when I was with you, I was there in fear and in trembling. So when he uses that fear and trembling, he's talking about having that humility He came into it low. He didn't come into a place high and mighty and making all kinds of demands on people. He came in low. And he would go into the synagogue. And he would speak in the synagogue. And he would share with them Christ and Him crucified. And they would, as it happened so often, they'd get mad and he'd throw, they'd throw him out. And and if he, he didn't fight it, he, in a couple places, he would just move next door. And he would find someone who believes and he would just stand there and say, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles then. And he preached the same thing. Christ and Him crucified. But he was, wherever he was, he was in that spirit and that attitude of humility that Jesus himself had. Do you understand that? Good. Good. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul uses a form of this phrase again. Paul says in verse 13, 2 Corinthians 7, 13, he talks about a visit from Titus. He says, Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in everything. It sounds very much like what he wrote directly to the Philippians, doesn't it? How this, when Titus went to them, they with fear and trembling, were obedient. Again, not because of any harshness, not any carnal fear, but again, the phrase fear and trembling is used to describe the humble spirit and the humble attitude, the selfless attitude they had in receiving Titus who came to them with words from the Apostle Paul. You understand? Yes, actually, yes. Yes. Don't argue with, don't argue with me. No, just kidding. <laughs> Don't argue with me. Submit. (laughs) Timing is everything. Um, 
Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5 says, Bond servants, slaves is the word, I've explained that before, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Look, with fear and trembling. You almost, you almost get the sense that fear and trembling, it's used so many times that it was almost just like a, ver- a common vernacular phrase. Right? It was, it was just a phrase that would be thrown out there to describe something, you know? Because he certainly isn't telling them, he's not telling workers to actually literal, literally cower in fear and, and, and just tremble in front of, what he's telling them is to be humble towards their bosses so that the testimony of their respect might shine light on the gospel before them. Do you understand that? So I I think we've satisfactorily shown from Paul's words what fear and trembling is that he's talking about, right? He's talking about having a respectful spirit and a respectful attitude, a humble spirit and a humble attitude. Now, just you have to see this used one time by Peter. Turn to uh, turn. I'm sorry, you're turning a lot, but that's how it goes. Turn to First Peter chapter three and fifteen, and and you're familiar with this verse a lot. Because this verse gets used to show that we ought to be ready to witness to people all the time. And, and that's a definitely a, a valid use for it. But listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. What's it say? And, and actually, it's funny, you know, if, 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 you back up, if you back up right before verse 15 to verse 14, it says... Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of your threats. Uh, not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So, so obviously fear and trembling is not a reference to being afraid of people, right? Because he quotes from Isaiah there to show that actually the opposite is true. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set apart the Lord. Set apart God as your Lord in your own heart. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Look at this. With meekness and fear. And that's the same idea as fear and trembling. Though it's a different human author. It's Peter writing. That's the idea. We ought to be ready to answer people who, look, when we go through difficulties, when we struggle for the sake of the gospel, and we don't give in to it by cowering in fear or by, or by backing down or by giving up or by turning carnal or by abandoning the faith, which sometimes trouble and persecution or we're sharing the gospel with people and we feel like they're not listening, there might be an inclination to just give up. Listen, what Peter says here is, no, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and you be ready always to give an answer when they ask about the reason for the hope that's in you. So in other words... We come with a message that we preach, but part of the message that we preach, inextricably linked with the message that we preach, is the attitude that we have and the life that we live. 
And what Peter is saying here is when they see that you have hope, even though no one's listening to you, even though no one seems to be responding, even though no one seems to approve of this faith in Jesus that you have, even if everyone thinks you're crazy because you, like in a modern age like this, you still believe in God, you still believe in the Bible, you're still going to church, you're still trying to serve the Lord, even if everyone around you thinks you're crazy, you continue to walk in that same spirit of humility and love and faithfulness, and there will be people, not hordes, but there will be people here and there who will wonder, why is he like that? Why does she continue with that? Doesn't she know how foolish she looks and sounds? And there will be the occasional person who will say, tell me why. Why are you different? Or they might not even ask it like that. They might just say it. You know what? You're different. And you're told by Peter, look, with meekness and fear. It doesn't mean to be afraid of the people. It describes your attitude of humility. You don't come at them with a hammer and say, it's because of this thing that I have been trying to tell all these stupid people around me who don't listen to me. That's not what Peter's talking about. If that's how you do it, you should be a little afraid because that's not the way that we're called to do it, right? No, with meekness and fear, let me tell you why. Let me tell you that I can't do anything but trust in Christ. I can't do anything but preach these words to you because in my life as a Christian, they have been tested and proven true time and time again. And the reason I seem like I have hope is because I do. It's because as I read God's Word and as I worship Him and as I walk with Him, He's right there with me. And you see the way people talk about me? You see the way they talk about me behind my back? You see the way they try to undermine the things that I say and do? You see the way that I, you see the way that I try to labor for Christ and people are tugging and pulling away at it and pulling the rug out from under it all the time? You want to know why I keep going? Because I can't do anything else, man. He is in me. And it is real. And you, and you answer that person in meekness and in fear and say to them, look, this is why I want you to have this because I know that it's real. I'm not, I have no desire to push a worldview or a religion or any sort of ob- religious obligation on you. I don't want your money. I don't want your children. I don't, want a- I don't want anything. Listen, all I want is for you to have what I have because I know that it's real. And I have prayed for you many times And I know that if you humble yourself before God, he will open this up to you. I know that if you put your faith in Jesus, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Meekness and fear. It's the attitude. Now, go back to Philippians. Philippians 2, which is where we are, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, now you understand what he's saying? He's saying, live out your life as a Christian in all humility. As who did? Right? Which is why it starts with the word therefore. 
He just got done telling you that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But God did what? God highly exalted him, right? Jesus was humble and obedient even to the death of the point of the cross, the point of death, the death of the cross. And therefore, God exalted him. Therefore, you, you live out your life. You live out the salvation you have received like Jesus did with meekness and trembling. Look, for it is God. You see, you see it now? You see, you see, the reference to God working in you is a tie, I believe, to verse 9. Just as Jesus was humble and Jesus was, didn't count it even robbery to be equal with God, Jesus laid it all aside and was found as a man and he was humble, obedient, even to the point of death, to the death of the cross. Therefore, God did what? God, it's what it says. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. Same thing with you and I. Paul says, listen, therefore, because of the example of Christ and how he was, therefore, what? I want you to be the same way. My beloved, you've always obeyed, not, not, not just in my presence, but even much more now in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. Just as God exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and also every tongue should confess that he is the Lord. Just as God did that in Jesus who humbled himself, you also work out your salvation, live out the fact that you are a Christian like Jesus did in fear and in trembling. Because just as God exalted Jesus, it is God who is working in you. He's working in you. Everything. To will, to will, and to do. Wow. God is actually working in you, giving you in here what you need to live out in fear and trembling here. And that's what Paul is saying to them. Just as Christ was the example of humility leading to exaltation, so you also live out your salvation humbly because it is the same God. It is God who is working in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. Start with the back end of that statement. There are things that happen in this world that please God. There are things that happen in this world that please God that are done by us. This is what he's saying. God works in you to what? Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So the the living of our lives, when done in fear and trembling and humility that actually brings great glory and great pleasure to God. But it's not us who choose what we do. It's not us who in our own strength do. It's not us who by our own will do. It's not us who just by what entertains us or what we like or by our own preferences. No. We are called to walk in humility because it is actually God Himself 
not only empowering us to do what he wants to do, but actually I believe what he's talking about, to will and to do. It speaks of the will, the desire in us is given to us by God. It's a picture of his complete sovereign authority over our lives, even over the inner workings of us that then spill out into how we live. It's when it says work out your own salvation, it's not talking about earning anything. It's not talking about working to stay saved. It's talking about just living out what God is working in. Oh, turn to, uh, I, I know you were just in 2 Peter, but 2 Peter and right in the beginning of the book, says something really powerful on this subject. Second Peter chapter 1, right at the very beginning of the book. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? We don't obtain salvation by our own righteousness. We obtain it by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in what? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through what? The knowledge of him. Look at that double use there of the word knowledge. You see that? It's very powerful. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. So in other words, and of Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace to you who know him, who know the Lord God and who know Jesus as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Isn't that, what, isn't that what Paul is talking about when he talks about working out your salvation? He's talking about living out the fact that you aren't saved. He's talking about your life, living a godly life, a humble, godly life, having that same humble spirit that Jesus had and living out a godly life. But where does this power, where does all of this stuff that we receive, this divine power, how does it grow in us? What does it say? Life and godliness what? Through the knowledge of him. So we're saved through the knowledge. Look at what Peter's saying here. We're saved through the knowledge of him and we grow more and more and are able to better and better understand his will through the increasing knowledge of him. Oh, this is an eye-opener. This is a revelation because this is so consistent with so many other things the Bible says. When Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches, what does he tell us to do? Abide in me, for without me you can do nothing, right? When James says, draw near to God, he says, God will what? Draw near to you. Here's the key. Here's the key to experiencing and knowing and being able to live out what God is working in you to will and to do. It's not doing anything. It's not, it's not laboring in our own flesh. It's devoting ourselves to learning of Him. It's devoting ourselves to seeking Him. Christians are first and foremost people who have been saved by grace through faith. But then as they live their lives, they are first and foremost diligent seekers of God. No one seeks God who's not a Christian. God comes to seek and to save 
that which is lost. God comes to seek and to save his own elect. But then once somebody becomes a Christian, then you become a seeker of God, a diligent seeker of God. The Bible even says he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Right? And so the Christian who's living his life for the Lord is, first of all, someone who in all humility is praying and is studying the Word and is devoting himself, the thoughts and the inclinations, everything about him is bowed before God because he's the one who's working in us. If we're Christians, we can't just run around like bulls in china shops. Through life. The only way I can think of it is we, just, we, we, we believe the truth and we desire salvation and then, and then somehow we think that, that like that's the end of it. And, we just, and, and to some extent it is, but we still have the issue of our lives to live here and how we ought to live it. And the way you ought to live it, live it is in fear and trembling, in all humility before the world as, as Jesus himself lived because God is worth... Now, you didn't have this before. You have it now in Christ. Him working in you to will and to do. Not just what to do and the strength to do it, but even the will, the desire to do it. All of it comes from God who is in you. So what is it that you are then to do? Seek Him with the whole heart. I don't know how else to put it. Are you hungry for Him? Is the earnest desire of your heart for Him To read and meditate on his word. This is what Peter talks about. He talks about his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? Through the knowledge of him. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. In other words, the more you know God, the better you know him, the better you know Christ, the more you're going to sense, if that's the right way to put it, the workings of Him in you to will and to do. And therefore, the better you're going to be able to work out your own salvation, live out your own salvation. I think what the passage is saying is to live out your Christian life with fear and trembling because God is the one who is working in you. And if that's true, then you need to like You need to just dip into that well all the time. You need to be fastened to that vine all the time. You need to be drawing near before that throne all the time. In, in, I I printed this out. You know, every now and then I like to take a little peek at the New Living Translation. And, and sometimes I feel like when I read it, it's a little, you know, it took maybe a little too much license. But, but listen to the way Second Peter, the verse I just read to you, Second Peter, verses one through the uh, chapter one, verses two through three. Listen to the way this reads in the New Living Translation, because I think it actually really elucidates it well. Ready? Listen to this. May God bless you with His special favor and wonderful peace as you come to know Jesus, our God and Lord, better and better. 
as we know Jesus better, His divine power gives us everything we need for living a godly life. (laughs) Couldn't have said it better myself. You got that? Let me read it again. Shake your head yes. May God bless you with His special favor and wonderful peace as you come to know Jesus, our God and Lord, better and better. As we know Jesus better, as we know Jesus better, His divine power gives us everything we need for a godly life. That's the function of God working in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. God works in us and we live it out. It's a picture of a relationship, isn't it? It's that we always talk about Christianity being a relationship. There's, there's an example of that relationship. God's working in you. He calls us to work out what He's working in you. Do you seek Him? The timer's going off. Does that mean I'm done? Does it, does it, does it, does you, you see, He's got, listen, God, God, I didn't get through the passage yet, but that's okay. We'll finish it. We'll finish it next week. Maybe this is a good place to stop. I actually have more things to say about this, but. I can't believe I, I actually am responding to an alarm that went off in the congregation. That's not, that's not going to like make you all set alarms every week now, right? Or maybe it is. I don't know, maybe I need that. But, but, the, but the point is, um, it's a good place to stop because the thing that you should take away from this, and I'm not done. I'm not done. There's more to say, and I'll give it to you next week, okay? I'm not done. There's more even to say just about this sentence that we're still on. There's more to say about it. But what you take away from what I've said so far today is this. I need my life. I am called to work out my salvation. I'm called to live out. I'm called to live out the salvation I've received from God through Jesus Christ by faith in Him, by His grace. I am called to live it out the way that Jesus lived, with fear and trembling, humility before this entire world. God's working in me. And so what I need to do is I need to be dipping into that well. Right? But Jesus said to the woman at the well, He said, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. He said, you, you, you come to me, you're never going to thirst again. That's the well you need to be dipping into. The well of salvation. The well of the Gospel. The well of your relationship. Your reconciliation to God through faith in Christ. I'm going to work out my salvation in all humility before the world the way that God wants me to in accordance with the fact that He is working in me to will and to do for His good pleasure. What I need to do is I need to be before Him a lot. I need to be in His Word, meditating on His Word with a desire to obey and a humility before Him. I need to be praying, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. I need to have my heart just consumed with love. I need to have that attitude of humility before the world and before my brothers and sisters like Jesus had. I need to pursue my relationship with God first, above all else, above all else. I'll pick up next week with Romans 12, but I'll just read it to you real quick. It says, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by which you might be able to prove what is that good and perfect will of God. 
See? God's working in you. You need to be completely changed by a completely different way of thinking so that you can prove, that is, understand and live out God's will for you. He's working in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. You need to work it out. How do you work it out? It's not religion. It's not sacraments. It's not ceremonies. It's not legalism. You work it out by abiding in the vine, getting close to Jesus and staying there for the rest of your life. If you're in Christ, can you make that commitment anew and afresh? To be before Him daily, frequently, always, not living in your flesh, not resting on past knowledge, but always increasing in the knowledge of God? Can you make that commitment? And if you're here today and you're not in Christ, man, I want to just speak to you and tell you, you can come to Christ. It's not any religious ceremony. You certainly come up here after the service is over and ask me some more questions. I'd be happy to talk with you. But listen, all you need to know is this, that Jesus died for your sins. He is the Son of God, and He is perfect, and you are sinful. You've broken, be honest, you've broken His laws, you've broken His commands. You're unholy before a holy God, but His love for you, His compassion for you, His mercy for you, and His grace towards you is that He gave Jesus His Son. And when Jesus died on the cross, He was receiving in Himself all the punishment for your sins that you deserve because God loves you. He poured it out on His own Son for you. And now if you will humble yourself and turn to Him, if you will humble yourself and believe on Jesus and trust in Him with all of your heart, God will give you His power to become His child. God will save you. God will reconcile you to Himself. God Himself will come into you. The Holy Spirit will be in you and you will be forever His. Then you can begin to walk in this life that I'm speaking of today. Come to Jesus. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. Receive an escape from certain judgment in hell and replace it with eternity with Christ forever and ever. Wow. Come to Him. Let's stand up and sing this last hymn over here together. Uh, Amy and Ken, come on up here. Let's.